that you want to live an inspired and fulfilling life. Maybe there are a few things that you need to get you there. Welcome to What Matters with your host, Mary Beth Lodge. In today's world of distractions, we can get overwhelmed with day-to-day responsibilities that keep us busy, frustrated, and confused. With an emphasis on the power of the mind and drawing on the fields of personal health, education, neuroscience, business, and spirituality, we'll discuss practical strategies to help you stay focused on your priorities, choices, and results. Now, here is Mary Beth Lodge. Good morning. Thank you for joining me today on What Matters. Today, I'm going to challenge you to make a difference. Can you do that? Can you find a way to make a positive difference in your world today? Can you make a change within yourself that will carry ripples of positive change into the lives of those around you and well beyond? Do you know that no matter what the change is that you make, it will reverberate through the lives of the people around you? No matter how small, it makes a difference. So for this one hour, spend this time really listening. That's right, pay attention. You've created the world you live in. How can you change the things that you want to change? And how does this apply to you? Not your significant other, your best friend, your child, your parent, or your coworker. Just you. You can share information with other people, but ultimately, you are the only person you can really change. You are the person that you are responsible for. And you are the person that can truly make a difference. Not by telling other people what to do, but by what you do. I know you're busy. We're all busy. We lead very busy lives, and I specialize in busy, but sometimes busy just means distracted. And distractions lead us away from our goals. Are you taking for granted the people in your life and the actions that you take that are most important to you? Are you spending your energy on things that don't really matter? What are the choices that you make in your world? And when you make a decision as to how to spend your time, do you consider the impact that decision will make? How do you touch the lives of the people you meet? And do you create sunshine wherever you are? Let's start this morning by making our own sunshine. What are you grateful for today? That's right. Look around your world. See all the blessings that enfold you. This morning, it is a rainy morning in my part of the world. We've had some deep soaking rains And it's just the right light this morning to bring out the rich green color of the grass. It is so beautiful. Yesterday I managed to walk in the woods and the spring beauties are all in bloom. So beautiful. I'm also grateful for the serviceman yesterday who came and repaired my washing machine. You know, I never realized just how much I rely on that washing machine until it wasn't available. It makes a big difference in my life. I'm also really grateful for the very skilled electrician that I consulted yesterday who could look at one part of an antique lamp and told me exactly what I needed. I love that skill and experience. It's so rewarding to see someone who can just instantly put a piece together in their mind and know exactly what's needed. This morning, we have a wonderful guest with us today. Her name is Christy Hemingway. Christy is the owner and founder of Gold Star Honeybeans, a complete resource for all things related to beekeeping in top bar hives. Before her conversion to evangelism, she mastered such varied careers as computer systems engineering and professional alpaca herd sitting. 
A chance encounter with a conventional beekeeper launched her on the road to natural, chemical-free beekeeping. A passionate advocate for bees and the pivotal role that they play in our food supply, Christy is a highly sought-after speaker, helping audiences to understand the integral connection between bees, food, human health, and the future of the planet. Good morning, Christy. How are you today? I'm fine, Mary Beth. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for being here this morning. Um, Christy, can you take us back into like how you discovered bees? I mean, why get into beekeeping? <laughs> It's kind of a funny story, I have to say. I uh, had known about bees and been okay about bees, but not curious about bees at all until I moved to Maine in 2006. And the first thing I did was go out to see a demonstration of someone putting bees in a hive and starting a brand-new colony. Still, that didn't really kick off anything. But when uh, we talk about on my resume that I was a professional alpaca herd sitter, somehow that got totally tied into the bee thing because... As a herd sitter, I also wanted to be able to offer some services, and one of them was shearing. So I needed somebody's alpacas to practice on, and I went to a local farm, and he said, sure, i got a half a dozen of them that need shorn. I'll show you how to do it. So I went out there, and we spent an afternoon giving six alpacas some very bad haircuts. And at the end of the afternoon, he reached over to a ledge in his barn, and he grabbed this jar, and he handed me this jar. And I looked at it, and I looked at him, and I said, what is this? And he looked at me as if I you know, wasn't quite on the planet. He said, it's honey. I said, no way. It looked nothing like what you see in the squeezy bear in the grocery store. <laughs> it was a thick, opaque, amber color. It was absolutely beautiful, but it just didn't look like what I had always known as honey. And uh, so I, of course, said, well, where did it come from? And he said, from my bees. And I said, you've got bees? And he said, yes. And I was like, instantly, somehow that moment was what kicked it in for me, and I wanted to know about having bees and everything related. So it turns out that he was the webmaster for a local beekeeping association, and so he promised that he would email me when they posted the start dates for bee school. And so I went to bee school, and uh, I found that pretty interesting. I learned about all the manipulating and the chemicals and the stuff that was part of conventional beekeeping. And But they promised us at the end of the class that there would be a big Q&A session. There'd be a whole panel of experienced beekeepers, and we could ask anything we wanted. So I was really looking forward to that because, you know, I had some specific things I wanted to know, like what did bees do before we gave them these sheets of wax foundation that you find in a square <laughs> box hive? And uh, so I, I get to that last class, and I'm waiting, because I'm sure everybody wants to know the same thing, right? So I'm just waiting, sure that someone else is going to, ask the same question, but nobody does, and nobody does. And so when I finally put my hand up and said, okay, I have to ask this question, and I said, what did bees do before we gave them wax foundation? The room went as silent as a tomb, and I thought, well, I thought two things. First, I thought, uh-oh, I did it again. And secondly, I thought, how can we not have a ready answer to that? And so... I left that class and went, spent that whole summer pulling bees out of buildings and roof lines and finding bees that had been in unmanaged situations so that I could see what it looked like and what the difference was. And the difference is really profound and really beautiful. The first time I pulled a piece of natural beeswax out of a cavity, I just, I was really wowed. And uh, 
so that certainly changed my path. Square boxes and wax foundation were not for me, and that's how I wound up going down the, the road towards top bar hives and natural wax and chemical-free beekeeping. Okay, can you can you kind of explain the difference for us? You know, if we're taking, if we're making the assumption that our most of our listeners probably aren't beekeepers or haven't totally. seen um, a natural hive or even a, a conventional hive, can mm-hmm. you kind of describe what that means? What's a conventional right. hive look like versus what's a natural hive look like? I'll be glad to. Conventional hives, known as Langstroth hives, named after the man who uh, patented them back during the Civil War days, um, the Reverend Langstroth. Um, are square boxes, and they stack. And inside the square boxes are rectangular frames that are designed to hold a sheet of wax foundation that the bees then build their honeycomb on. That makes sense? Yes, and that's what most of us see. That's what you, I mean, typically when you think about a beehive, you are either picturing a square box out the edge of a field or a skep, which looks like an upside-down basket, which we don't use anymore, but it's kind of the idyllic little picture of a beehive with a little mouse door at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So that's what most people think of. Okay. But a top bar hive is, uh, is different from all of that. It looks a bit like a trough, runs horizontally. The one that my company manufactures stands up on legs at kitchen counter height, so it's kind of easy to stand at. You don't have to do a lot of bending and lifting, twisting and stuff to work it. But the difference is, the biggest difference between the two is that in a top bar hive, you have a bar that goes across the top. This is so basic, it's kind of silly. A bar <laughs> that goes across the top of this trough-like cavity. And the bees go into the box when you hive them and start a hive. And without any wax foundation, they know, because it's what bees do, to hang down from these bars and draw out honeycomb, just like they would in a tree. Okay. So that's the primary difference. It's really... I've always told people that if I had to boil down everything that I'm about and what I advocate for and why I started Gold Star Honeybees into one sentence, I would say it is all about the wax. Because people don't necessarily understand that the size of the little hexagons that everybody pictures when you see honeycomb, mm-hmm. like if you've ever bought a chunk of honeycomb in the store, you know that it's little hexagons full of honey and they're sealed over. <laughs> but the size of those hexagons is different. And when the bees are in control of that size, then they are able to do things like make girl bees, which are the workers, or boy bees, which are the drones, or honey, which is you know can be in a, any size cell. It doesn't matter. It doesn't doesn't connect to the gestation cycle of the insect itself. So playing around with the sizes of the cell was what we did when we started with this wax foundation, and started throwing things off that was really deeply integral to how honeybees live. I and mean, If you were to do something to a woman that changed the gestation cycle of her pregnancy, we would probably be all up in arms, but it was not a big deal, we seem to think, when we did it to honeybees. Hmm. <laughs> so that's a little bit scientific. Did that get it, get it at all clear? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess taking it a, a step further, when, when we manage the hive, when we manage the the honeycomb itself and uh-huh. kind of tell the bees what to do, that that rolls out. I mean, that that goes well beyond just the size of the honeycomb. That goes out to whether this hive survives. That goes out to whether this hive is effective. It does. And it breaks the 
natural system that is at work inside a beehive. You have to think of a hive. <coughs> excuse me. You have to think of a hive as a big superorganism. Everything that's going on is going on for a reason. It's all tied into everything else that's going on in the hive. And when you mess with one little thing, like wax foundation, changing the size of the cells, you're having a trickle-down effect that, that is literally connected to everything else going on in the box. Mm-hmm. So. One of the... Um... One of the reasons that I found you was a TED Talk that you did on connection. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just love that presentation because it it kind of, um, it, it was kind of like spiral loops for me. You know, it, it, you, you just kept, you know, you just kept winding further and further and further out and how, you know, here's this one tiny little honeybee and, Oh my gosh! It changes the world. I, you know, I mean, it's it's truly what I talk about. With everything you do matters. Everything yeah. that you do makes a difference because this little honeybee is a big deal. It's a huge big deal. I mean, of all the things on the planet that are connected to everything, I mean, everything is connected to everything if you look at it from a you know a, a bee's eye view, if you will. Mm-hmm. But um, it's just amazing how many things you can point at and see the direct connection between bees and food, and bees, and agriculture, and bees, and beef. I mean, alfalfa needs pollinated, so therefore cows need bees too. I mean, do you like the reference in there about the infinity mirror? Mm -hmm. Because it it just was like that for me. I kept looking, I kept getting deeper, I kept seeing them like a spiral, like you said. Mm -hmm. I was just astonished at the way it was all connected. And then, Right about the time it got way too complicated for my brain to hold it, it boiled down to something as simple as a dandelion is beef food. So don't don't break the dandelion. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's little things like that are well, what matter. I have to tell you that once I saw that picture of the dandelion and you said bee food, I, you oh. know, my my whole world changed with that one statement. I'm thinking, oh, good, I don't have to dig the dandelions out this year. That's right. fabulous. <laughs> You're doing a good thing if you leave your dandelions alone. Yeah. A beekeeper can get pretty defensive about dandelions. Man. Don't mess with those. Because they are, they're really, they're one of the most, um, one of the earliest sources of nectar that come out in the spring. That, maple trees, and pussy willows are early, early bee food. And so, like, don't protect those at all costs. They matter a great deal. You and I had a conversation um, as we prepared for this interview about, um, you know, locations that bees would thrive. And I kind of made the statement that, gosh, you know, where I live, you know, it, it's it's so it's just a, such a romantic idea to have bees. And, <laughs> I, you know, I briefly danced with that for about, oh, 10 seconds and then looked around my neighborhood and thought, there's no bee food here. And You're living you, in a concrete jungle? You said <laughs> <laughs> that that wasn't true. I, you know, the, and, you know, and I look around and it's not concrete, but it's certainly not thriving. And, um, but, but you made an interesting comment that bees aren't local to just the yard they're in. Right. I like to tell people that they don't get to your property line and bounce back. <laughs> you know, they, they fly for <coughs> two miles easy, five mm-hmm. miles in a lot of cases. I've even heard of seven. No, I don't know who chased that bee for seven miles to know that, but, you know, <laughs> if they can forage in an area that's five miles 
from the hive, then that's an area 10 miles across by 10 miles across. That's 100 square miles. Right. So it's much bigger than we think it is, and that really plays into some of the problems that we've had because when we didn't think about that, then it became simple to pour pesticides on something that was within that area and say, oh, no problem, there's no bees here. But there are bees there, you know? It's just not safe to poison anything because it all has to work together. And it's also, the other thing that happens is I have a lot of people that say, just like you did, oh, well, there's nothing here for bees to eat. And so they decide that they can't keep bees in whatever their location is. But typically, even in an urban area, there is enough forage, provided the area isn't saturated with beehives, there is probably enough forage and enough reasonably safe forage for people to keep bees in the backyard or on the roof of their home in an urban area and and be fine. In fact, sometimes that's much safer than being in the middle of cornfield in Iowa because of Mm -hmm. what we're doing to corn. Because of the pesticides in the... uh, Exactly. We're using nicotine-based systemic pesticides on big commodity crops, most specifically corn, soybeans, canola, and... You know, it's funny to watch this all play out between beekeepers and researchers and multi-million dollar corporations that say, oh, this isn't hurting the bees, and, and, and watch how it's finally seeming to come back around to like, wait a minute, this stuff can't be good for bees. And yet, you know, the response to that from Bayer Corporation is that, oh, there's no evidence that this stuff is harmful to bees. Well, of course there's no evidence if you're the one doing the testing. <laughs> which is yet another can of worms that we can open if you like. <laughs> we'll open that, but just not yet. <laughs> right. Thank you. <laughs> That's the ugly one. So, so again, I'm having you know kind of this this thought, and um, I, I shared with you once before, but that you know I live in a a town that has a steel mill and a paper mill uh-huh. in close proximity, both of them. Uh, to my home, and when I first moved to this town, um, mm-hmm. I was driving down the main road in front of the steel mill, and right across the street, in the little houses that were originally designed for the workers of the steel mill, there were two beehives. In oh the my yard. word! How about that? <laughs> and I thought, well, how does that work? That these bees. I, you know, can thrive right under the smokestacks of of the the steel mill. Right. Well, and and obviously, you know, your your answer about they forage mm-hmm. for great distances was the answer. Right. Exactly. They're not they're not just eating what's underneath the smokestack. It's funny that you bring up steel mills, though. I just taught a class in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which was very nearly my hometown. I grew up half an hour from there. And uh, what a rock and roll group they are there. There's a guy there by the name of Steve Rapaski. He's the president now of Berg Bees. And there's a steel town with a thriving community apiary system. It's just really neat to see what they're doing. And uh, if you get to their, I mean, they got a website and Facebook and all of that stuff, you can check out their apiary. And they've got, I don't know, 12, 15 hives in a fenced-in area, one of which is a, a Gold Star hive now since I've been down there. And, and uh they're doing and teaching beekeeping at just an amazing level in a steel town. 
Well, Chrissy, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I, I want to continue on this uh, conversation about how bees really affect our environment. All righty. You're listening to the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you ready to make a change in your life? Would you like to discover the hidden obstacles to your success? Mary Beth Lodge is a certified life coach with a proven track record of guiding others to success. Drawing on mind-body techniques and concepts of neuroscience, Mary Beth will design a program specific to your goals, lifestyle, and personality. You'll develop a specific action plan to follow. You'll learn practical and easy strategies to move through your obstacles and reach your goals. You decide the area to focus on. Is it your weight, your health, or your professional goals? Mary Beth Lodge is a life coach, hypnotist, and health consultant. She specializes in working with people who are confused, frustrated, or discouraged by the direction of their life. She works with people who really want to make a difference in this world and are willing to take the actions to achieve their goals. She'll help you get clear on where you want to be and to follow through on the actions that lead to a healthier and more successful life. Visit LastingLifestyleChange.com to request more information or a free consultation. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to What Matters with Mary Beth Lodge. To be a part of our discussion on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to marybethlodge at gmail.com. Now, back to What Matters. Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning on What Matters. Our guest is Christy Hemingway, and she is the owner and founder of Gold Star Honeybees. And we've been having a very wonderful conversation about bees in the world and the impact of bees on our environment. Christy, let's go ahead and open that can of worms. When, <laughs> when, when we think of bee food and, you know, pretty much anything that has a blossom is bee food. Right. And so that means that the bees in their relatively delicate state are very susceptible to anything that we apply to live plants. Totally. If it's a plant, it should be considered, you know, hands off. Don't be poisoning that in any way because you're essentially poisoning the bee food. Mm-hmm. Never mind people, you know what I mean? Well, yeah, because then... The... We could talk about them too, but first line of defense for me is that, is that the bees get into that stuff and... Uh, they're tiny, and they respond quickly, and so they get called the canary in the coal mine because yes. they are so quickly affected by such things. But it's uh, it, it's just sort of hideous that we've been so cavalier about it. Well, and, I think that what happens is that when it does affect people, we don't see the direct connection. It's right. much easier to see the direct connection to the bees. Right. And or we hope that's true. That's been part of the problem because... You don't necessarily see, like, like let's talk directly about systemic pesticides. These things are nicotine-based, 
they're usually painted on the seed. Sometimes the soil is drenched, but it's usually painted on the seed. And as the seed grows, every cell of the plant, the, the root, the stem, the bud, the leaf, the flower, the fruit, has got this pesticide in it so that something that eats the leaves, like a caterpillar, gets this pesticide. Something that gathers nectar from the flower gets it. Something that gathers pollen gets this stuff. And so it was designed, obviously, to kill the bad bugs, but we have yet to meet a pesticide that's smart enough to know the difference between a honeybee and a bad bug. Well, but we eat that plant. Well, you know, we do. Isn't that silly? (laughs) It's crazy that we do this. And... uh, I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting way to step out of the in, industrial agriculture aspect of this and into a more spiritual thing that's going on here. If you were to look back at the 1900s and how we started making chemicals for war, nitrogen for bombs, Zyklon B to kill the Jews, all, these, all this chemical warfare stuff that we started with when the wars were over, the world wars, we needed a use for all this stuff. And we turned it growing food and I want to you know everybody asks you when you write a book are you ever going to write another book and you always say no at the time because you're hating the process so much but I think there is another book coming and my subject of interest is what happened to us as a species psychically when we began to use the products of war to grow food doesn't that strike you as slightly sick well, well, maybe a little cer- more than slightly sick. Well, it certainly is very twisted. Very twisted. It's, it, um, and yet I think, just from my perspective of where I sit in the world, mm-hmm. I think most people don't even make that connection. I don't think so either. And I think that's another symptom of how disconnected we got from the whole process of going growing food, which is why there's such a trend now to... Uh, shop at the farmer's market to take your kids to a farm on a weekend to, so that they see that a cow is a cow and not hamburger in a package, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so being becoming more connected with our food is, uh, is almost like a healing process that's starting now. But the idea of painting uh, a, a toxic pesticide on the seed of a plant and having the entire plant be poisonous is really messing at a deep level, kind of like... You know, I got so whacked out about the wax. Like, don't be messing with the wax. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that people like to say is, well, we're using it on corn, and bees don't pollinate corn. But have you ever read The Omnivore's Dilemma by Michael Pollan? No, I haven't. If I could recommend a book, boy, that's a great book. And Michael Pollan has done a beautiful job of describing uh, in that book or one of his others the sex life of corn which was a real eye-opener for me. Because if you picture a tall stalk of corn, and at the top of the plant there are the little tassels, and then you get the ears of corn that come off as the, off, off the side of the stalk as it goes up, and off the tip of the ear of corn is the silk. Mm-hmm. All of these are pretty important, and they work together in a really unusual way. But the flower of the corn plant is the kernel that you eat. And if you think about that, they're inside the husk, so they're not out where bees can fly by and pollinate them. Mm-hmm. So it's absolutely true. Bees do not pollinate corn. Wind pollination is what it's called, and the pollen falls from the tassels down onto the tips of the silk. It takes two grains of pollen 
to make one kernel of corn. The first grain goes down the silk making a tunnel. The second grain follows it. And when the second grain gets there, it pollinates that kernel. So doesn't have much to do with bees. It's more about the pollen falling into the right place and getting on the silk. But bees feed pollen to their babies, and they gather corn pollen left, right, and sideways. Mm-hmm. And so that's where they're coming into contact with it, one of, the, one of the heavier sources of it. And then, it, obviously, they've encountered the toxin there, and they don't die right away, but they take the pollen back to the hive, and then we kind of lose track of it because we can't necessarily say what effect did that neonicotinoid have on the next round of brood or what effect did it have on the queen or what effect did it have on the virility of the drone bees in that hive, the boys. You know, and so it's so connected that taking one chance is a huge risk because it's probably affecting all of those things. But we also know, I mean, there's that the whole issue of colony collapse that is becoming almost epidemic. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? I can try. Um, The first thing to know about colony collapse disorder is that it's just weird. There are two things in the world that bees will sting to defend, their brood or babies and their food, the honey. And so it's obvious that that stuff is really important to them because when they sting, they die. Mm -hmm. So it's life or death, and they are not kidding about protecting those two things. So in the case of a hive that has uh, collapsed, what you find is a box still full of brood and still full of honey, but the bees are not there. So they've apparently abandoned it, flown away and chosen not to come back, perhaps flown away, encountered some nicotine-based pesticide, which affects their central nervous system, which maybe blew up their GPS and kept them from getting home. But the point is, they're leaving behind the two things that are most important to them for no apparent reason. Now, what's causing it? That's where the jury is still out, but my money would go on neonicotinoid pesticides, absolutely. We've had stuff out there for eight-plus years now on a conditional registration. In other words, go ahead and use this, and we'll pick up with the testing later. Eight years. Testing was supposed to be done by year two. Hasn't happened. The EPA has let this stuff go on and let us get into this place where we've got the toxins. You know, It's just sort of infiltrated. In, in such a way that we can't really pull it back now. It's not like we can undo what we've done. And we still don't know whether this stuff is uh, is safe based on the testing the EPA would like to say because the EPA doesn't actually do the testing. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that's really scary that we're actually putting our environment into the hands of a corporation. And a corporation is driven to make money for its stockholders, not to protect the environment. And yet it's the corporation who is supposed to do the test to prove that the stuff is safe. There's no checks and balances going on there at all. Broken system. Mm-hmm. Fox guarding the hen house. Well, I, I was just thinking that. Here, yeah. Mr. Fox, give us a system to keep the, the chickens safe. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. That's what it's like. That's exactly what they're doing. And so, you know, how do you combat that? It, it's pretty hard. I think some of us just combat it by saying, oh, can't think about that. I'm going to go do something else today. It's hard. It's really hard. There's a bunch of beekeepers, not a bunch, I think a half a dozen beekeepers, some pesticide action networks um, who have sued 
the EPA. And that, that, that court case is just now getting started. If you wanted to uh, learn a little bit more about somebody who's been instrumental in sort of uncovering the fact that this conditional registration had been going on for so long, I would send you to look up Tom Theobald out in, uh, just outside of Boulder, Colorado, where he is just adamant that we need to clean house at the EPA and clean this whole mess up because we're just not protecting anything. It's criminal. Mm-hmm. There's so, yeah. also the the whole issue about um, kind of monoculture um, farming or um, I'm, I'm not sure I have the right word there, but but essentially the the single crop um, kind of thing. And also, um, you know, I, I again, these are things that I don't think are common knowledge, but the whole issue about the al- almond trees. Yes, yes. No, you totally get it. When you said monoculture, you hit it on the head. <coughs> when we started, boy, this throat, let me get some honey. This might help my throat. Huh? <laughs> when we started growing things in gigantic farms, believing that we were being efficient, by planting, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of just one thing, we broke, again, we broke another natural system. And now that helps, yay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so, (laughs) if you think about it, when you have diversity, and you've got, let's say, 20 crops growing in this 20-acre area, or not to quote my numbers on this, but just to talk about diversity, then what you've got is a situation where bugs that eat one plant don't eat a different plant, and bugs that eat the different plant might eat the bugs that eat the first plant. So the whole thing works together in order to keep some kind of balance, and you don't ever lose everything all at once. But when you take that natural diversity away, break the system, plant 20 acres of only one thing, now the bug that loves that crop has a field day. There's nothing to counterbalance it, nothing to come along and eat the bad bugs, and you wind up losing the whole crop. And so the farmer says, can't have that. It's also Isn't it also that you're training the bugs? If you plant that same crop year after year after year, the bugs learn to come back. Well, sure, because it's just, (laughs) yay, free food, you know? Right, right. Yeah, so having broken that diversity is, is crazy that... You know, I like the way Joel Salatin puts it, <laughs> especially, okay, well, let's pick on California and the almond groves. A million acres of almonds is not normal. That is not normal. Nature doesn't do it like that. She would never put all of her eggs in one basket like that and then say, okay, here you go, hope you make it. Mm-hmm. You know, she creates a system where the balance works to make enough of everything survive that we all can thrive. And that was a huge, important thing that when Earl Butts got into office in Richard Nixon's administration and started in with get bigger, get out, and driving farmers to make these gigantic industrial farms and buy this huge equipment, and, you know, so, so that your average farmer was now incredibly in debt to, to own the ridiculous equipment that he was supposed to use in order to spray the pesticides and make his huge farm, boy, that was a real turning point. You know, and most people don't realize that that, that was kind of a, a, a key point in big agriculture, taking us to the point now where everybody's going, wait a minute, this is not good, and mm-hmm. trying to suddenly back up. And, and we have a lot of learning to do because most people don't realize that that was happening. I mean, I came late to that party, too. I was like, wait a minute, what's going on with the bees? 
Mm-hmm. What do you mean we're growing up a million acres of almonds in California? And the other reason that the while we're on the California almond grows, and you know, I don't have anything against almonds. I just have a real big problem with the way they're growing them. When you've got a million acres of almonds, and when you know that an almond tree only blooms for 22 days, you can now look at that million acres of almonds and say, oh, for 340-some days of the year, that's nothing but a bee desert. Bees cannot live there because there's no food. So that's where we got into this idea. This is the industrial aspect of beekeeping. You have to bring the bees to the trees. We call it migratory pollination. The almond groves are the biggest migratory move in the United States. People are getting $250 for a little dinky five-frame hive of bees because the almond growers are so desperate to have bees in those almonds. It's over now. It all happens in February. So, You know, I didn't quite understand how that impacted bees until mm. I saw a trailer for a film, and I don't even know the, the name of the film at this point, uh-huh. but... Um, that described, uh, you know, I mean, I'm I'm seeing these images of huge trucks. Oh, semi. Fil- sure. Yes, yeah, semi trucks yeah. filled with beehives, mm-hmm. being hauled in to the almond groves. Yep. Re- they're set up. The bees go out. They pollinate. Mm-hmm. You know, 21 days later, everybody comes back with their trucks. Right. They load the bees onto the trucks and take them back home or take them wherever. And what I didn't understand until I saw that uh, trailer was that what that essentially means is we put all of the bees together in one place. If somebody's sick, everybody gets sick. We take them home and they die. Or they make every bee in the neighborhood sick. Right. So then it spreads out and... Um, it spreads out even further that now, you know, we're losing whole colonies, whole areas of bees mm-hmm. because of this one practice. You've hit the nail right on the head. It's kind of like the other analogies I like to use to try and make this point clear. When you send your child to kindergarten mm-hmm. and somebody at kindergarten has the flu, mm-hmm. pretty soon everybody has the flu, right? Everybody mm-hmm. gets it. And that's essentially what's happening when you send all of the bees to California. If one guy's got one problem, then it spreads throughout. <laughs> and uh, there's another one that just walked out of my head. Sorry. <laughs> when it comes back to me, I'll use it. But, you know, we just really don't get it, how connected things are. And if, if we understood the connectedness better, we would make much different decisions, much different decisions. Well, it's we're certainly, putting everything at risk. It, it certainly made me think about, like, what product do I buy? Right. Do you know, I mean, okay, I admit it. I, you know, I bought the sale of almond milk because, right. you know, almond milk is supposed to be good for me. Right. And so, you know, I brought, bought home the, the two half gallons. And after, after I saw that and after I had that conversation with you, I went and looked. Well, there's nothing on that carton that says it's organic. No. Which tells me that it's coming from a conventional uh, almond producer. Probably that million acres of almond trees. <laughs> um, yeah. And, okay, i got to make a different decision. Because if I continue to buy that product, then I'm supporting that practice. That's right. You are voting with your dollar. And, mm. yeah, I mean, I love California. I mean, I love California. But to think of doing something that would destroy the livelihood of most of the Central Valley of California is is not my goal, but 
as an almond grower, wouldn't you think that they could understand this connectedness and work towards creating a diversity in the almond groves that allowed them to grow almonds, but that also allowed bees to be safely there all year round? Mm-hmm. That would be the goal. Now, from my point of view, anyway, now they are doing some stuff where they're working on um, ideas like that where you know, there's a protocol about planting certain species you know, adjacent mm-hmm. rows. I don't know enough about right. the science of growing the almond trees, but right. they're alternating different species of almonds in order to get the pollination, the cross-pollination that they have to have. And they uh, are also looking at almonds that don't require pollination, self-pollinating mm-hmm. almonds. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's kind of a way of walking around the whole question. But the idea of making it so that the groves could support peace is is to be applauded. I mean, that that would be huge. I don't know, you know, if I were the financial analyst for an almond grower that I could justify it and say, well, you know, if we plant, if we rip out this many rows of trees and we put in this much wildflowers, you know, <laughs> where are your stockholders going to come down on that question, you know? Right. As opposed to need- how many of them are beekeepers, you know? Yeah. We need to take a short break, and okay. when we come back, we'll, we'll wrap up this conversation. You're listening to the Voice America Variety Channel. Stay tuned. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you ready to make a change in your life? Would you like to discover the hidden obstacles to your success? Mary Beth Lodge is a certified life coach with a proven track record of guiding others to success. Drawing on mind-body techniques and concepts of neuroscience, Mary Beth will design a program specific to your goals, lifestyle, and personality. You'll develop a specific action plan to follow. You'll learn practical and easy strategies to move through your obstacles and reach your goals. You decide the area to focus on. Is it your weight, your health, or your professional goals? Mary Beth Lodge is a life coach, hypnotist, and health consultant. She specializes in working with people who are confused, frustrated, or discouraged by the direction of their life. She works with people who really want to make a difference in this world and are willing to take the actions to achieve their goals. She'll help you get clear on where you want to be and to follow through on the actions that lead to a healthier and more successful life. Visit LastingLifestyleChange.com to request more information or a free consultation. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to What Matters with Mary Beth Lodge. To be a part of our discussion on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to marybethlodge at gmail.com. Now, back to What Matters. Good morning. Thank you for joining me this morning on What Matters. Our guest has been Christy Hemingway, and she is the owner and founder of Gold Star Honeybees. We've had just a very wonderful conversation about the impact of honeybees in, in our whole world. And Christy, you know, we've we've talked about kind of the the issues and the problems, how honeybees are, are kind of the canary in, in the mind kind of thing for us, and yet we don't always pay attention to exactly how we impact the bees and how the bees impact us. Can you take us down to 
kind of the practicality. If someone is listening to us this morning uh-huh. and they want to do something, uh, where where do you start? What do you pay attention to and what are the little choices that you can make that matter? This is a great question. <laughs> totally a great question. <laughs> because all the way over on one end is, is me and Gold Star Honeybees. And if you go out to my website, then you can talk equipment. You can look at the book, The Thinking Beekeeper, all of that stuff. But not everybody is gung-ho to jump into beekeeping. And so there's a lot of other things that you can do. And most of it, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, is making conscious choices. When you, you, know, when you think about your lawn, if you think about your lawn, <laughs> mm-hmm. some people do, mm-hmm. some people don't, the idea of putting pesticides on stuff that grows in a lawn is anathema to bees. They forage on the clovers, the wildflowers, those little teeny-weeny things that you look down and go, I don't know what that is, stuff in my yard. But all of that, you need to learn to think of it as bee food. It's all precious and important when you're a bee. And so what you put on your lawn in the way of chemicals is really important. If you take that up a step and think about your community, there have been some wonderful places. Canada is the first place I heard about it. Camden, Maine uh, did something similar citizens group got together and got it banned that they could not use any pesticides or lawn, you know, lawn, toxic lawn stuff in the common areas of the town. Anywhere the children would play, parks, playgrounds, anything like that are all pesticide free. So if you if you've got the ability and the organizing skills to push that button and be an activist for getting the chemicals off the lawns for kids in that case and for bees those are huge things. Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to planting things in your own yard, go to your cooperative extension. That's going to be somebody local who knows the plants that grow well in your area and ask for a list of plants that are good bee forage. And if you've got decisions to make about what to plant in your yard or your garden or your community building or whatever, choose from those lists. And that way they'll be native to your area and they'll be good for bees and that helps to support the whole process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about the foods? What, what about when I go to the grocery store? Well, if I could get everybody on the planet to suddenly buy nothing but organic going forward from right now, the world would be a very different place pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. When you put your money down for conventionally grown food, you are essentially sitting in the audience at a performance, and applauding for conventional agriculture. And if that's the performance you want to hear again, then by all means, do it. But if that's not what you want, then seek out organic sources of food. Go to the farmer's market. Get to know the guy who's growing this stuff, because let me tell you, he's an important person, and he's got some philosophy and some standards and some convictions that are worth having truly worth having, and supporting him or her by buying their produce or their meat or whatever it is that they're bringing to offer is a huge step of putting the money in the right place. If you, you know, if, if you give your money to Walmart, you're going to get more, more Walmart. And mm-hmm. I don't know how many of us want to live in that world where we think we have to shop at Walmart because that's not a very long-sighted view. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, you know the, the the whole concept of farmers markets. They're there. They're available. Totally. You wouldn't believe how many of them there are. Mm-hmm. I mean, I live in a I live in a town 
with 8,500 8, people, Bath, Maine, yes. tiny little town. We've got the Bath Farmers Market, which they managed to make year-round in a building of their own this year. We've got the Brunswick Farmers Market. Both of these are, are within six miles of my house. If you go on down the road to Portland, you know, everybody's got one. Everybody's got a farmer's market. If you don't have one in your neighborhood, then you need to start one because <laughs> that food is out there. People are growing it. They need help getting it to market. Farmer's markets are becoming the method of choice. It's a very, very interesting way to sell food, too, because it's not like going to your local Shaw's or Safeway or Vaughn's or whatever your Piggly Wiggly, whatever your grocery store of choice is in your neighborhood. It's not like that. It's not open 10 to 10 or, you know, it's just not there for your convenience. It, a farmer's market is there for you to be thoughtful about purchasing food from someone who grew it thoughtfully with, with good intent. And so you have to plan when you go, and you have to know what's going to be in season because you can't necessarily go get an avocado in February in Maine. It's not supposed <laughs> to work like that. It's not supposed to. And so you go, and what's, what happens that's so beautifully different about going to the farmer's market is they do things like they have live music. Or they have the local beekeeper crazy person come in and, and sell her book. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. You know, I love going to farmer's markets. I can't do it all the time. But, and then, you know, going and having music when you're shopping is just, will change, change your, whole, your whole thing. And you'll see people that you know and people that believe in the same stuff that you do. And the momentum that is building in that direction and the way that's shifting the paradigm is just huge. It's just huge. It really, really, really matters. Really matters. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And you know that uh, again. I I love farmers markets, and I think one of the things that uh, is so basic to a farmers market is, as you said, it's not there twenty four seven. You can't just go. At, you know when it's convenient, you have to plan for it. But it also wakes you up. Totally. It totally. you know it, it brings you back to consciousness. Instead yep. of walking through your world unconsciously, you know, walking through the grocery store, grabbing things, throwing them into your cart, not thinking about anything in terms of the, the chain and of how that food got to you or the connections that, that it's made, it forces you to be very, very thoughtful. When yep. I walk through a farmer's market, you know, I'm looking at these different little booths that are set up and I'm, I'm looking at the baked goods that, you know, the, the woman standing there was up all night making. Right. She made that stuff for you. <laughs> she made that for me, you know, beginning yesterday morning. And, <laughs> right. um, and, you know, and, and, you know, just listening to her say, okay, I'm not doing this past July. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, right, 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 right. You know, I mean, cause she's tired, you know? <laughs> yeah. And they are tough stuff. I mean, I don't like to get up early, so me, the idea of baking something and getting to the farmer's market is like, oh, my God, <laughs> not happening mm-hmm. in my world. But mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, way they, the way they create a community of, of their own, the people who, who vend at a farmer's market, is amazing support system that they're building for themselves. And the way, I mean, what they're really doing is they're feeding us. And if you think about food on a really deep level, if we go back to this spiritual connection of food, I think that food is really, it's a way of moving the love around. Mm -hmm. And so for someone to have prepared food and then offer it to me and to have done it, you know, with with all the good intent and and not been this distracted, industrial, disconnected process, you know, it's, it's a sacred 
magical, amazing thing. And it matters. It just matters. I think it matters to the planet. It matters to us as humans. It matters to our souls. It matters to the energy that we're then perpetuating for the next generation, for the bees, all of that. Mm-hmm. I'm done being maudlin now. It really is like that, though. It's all connected, and it's so magical. And if you're a part of it, then you really get a, a pardon the pun, you get a buzz from it. And if you're disconnected from it, then it means nothing to you, and you are sort of dead in a place in your heart. Right. Yeah. Right. That's a tough yeah. way to be. Yeah. It's, well, it, you know, I I don't even know where to where else to go. I think that's that's just such a. a beautiful way to kind of wrap this up is is to take it beyond it's it's not just about the bee it's totally not it's all about everything (laughs) it's about us you know it's about you know every everything that we do is connected to everything else and the bees are you know beautiful symbols of how we are so intricately connected and to how when we want health you know, when when we're looking at what it is that we can do to create a healthy world for ourselves, a healthy body for ourselves, mm-hmm. start with the bees. Start with the bees. And start they'll take the you where you need to go to make it all come together. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, I, you know, I might have to reconsider that thing about, you know, the, the romantic idea of having bees <laughs> in my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> well, do check out the website. You might find that it's not so impossible as you might thought. It's um, <laughs> the other nice thing about a top bar hive is it looks a little bit like it's not a beehive, and so it's mm-hmm. it's kind of stealthy and it's you know it's a little less industrial looking, so it's kind of fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'd love sure. to say you were a beekeeper. I would be so proud to be part of your beekeeping journey. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd have to consult all the cats in the backyard first and say, okay, guys, do you think we can do this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Christy, I truly want to thank you for being on the show, for bringing our awareness um, just to a, a, just a whole deeper level for making every one of our listeners think. Um, well, that was be- the point, right? The whole thinking beekeeper thing. <laughs> yes, yes. But, that you know, beyond that, you don't have to be a beekeeper to think. No, you don't. And, and really, I love the name of the show. I love talking about things that really matter. I love distilling it down into into little core pieces that, mm-hmm. uh, that matter. And uh, so it's been absolutely great to be. Sorry about the voice. I don't always <laughs> sound like this. Truly, I don't. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, I hope to connect again in the near future. Well, uh, I I hope so too. So you know, I want to I want to just take this out now to to every listener that's listening. You have new information today. You have a way to make a difference. You can make a single choice, and it will carry incredible ripples. So be thoughtful today. Be aware of what it is you choose and how that's connected. Just begin to think backwards from every choice that you make. Where did that choice begin and where is it going? This is your call to action. Take one thing that you've heard today, put it in place, put it into action. Go out there, make it a great day. You truly deserve it. Thanks again for joining us for What Matters. Be sure to tune in again next Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll help you continue to make a difference next week.
Are you ready to make a change in your life? Would you like to discover the hidden obstacles to your success? Mary Beth Lodge is a certified life coach with a proven track record of guiding others to success. Drawing on mind-body techniques and concepts of neuroscience, Mary Beth will design a program specific to your goals, lifestyle, and personality. You'll develop a specific action plan to follow. You'll learn practical and easy strategies to move through your obstacles and reach your goals. You decide the area to focus on. Is it your weight, your health, or your professional goals? Mary Beth Lodge is a life coach, hypnotist, and health consultant. She specializes in working with people who are confused, frustrated, or discouraged by the direction of their life. She works with people who really want to make a difference in this world and are willing to take the actions to achieve their goals. She'll help you get clear on where you want to be and to follow through on the actions that lead to a healthier and more successful life. Visit LastingLifestyleChange.com to request more information or a free consultation. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management. I'm Dr. Sam Nussbaum with WellPoint. We 